Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. We did get the third quarter GDP report out earlier this morning. It came in ahead of expectations, 3.5%. And interestingly, that's an annualized rate. Interestingly enough, the uh, director of the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, Mick Mulvaney, came on Bloomberg Television. He said he expects this pace of growth to be sustainable? That is a key question here, and we are going to ask it of Constance Hunter, chief economist at KPMG, who joins us here in our 1130 studios. Constance, do you think that 3.5% is a sustainable annual rate of growth for U.S. economy in the years ahead? I do not. And let me tell you why. There's a couple of reasons. First, if you look at potential GDP, which is the growth rate of the sum of the working age population plus the growth rate of productivity, that puts us at about a 1.8% GDP growth. Now we could have a productivity surge, right? It could happen, but productivity is very difficult to predict. Um, and so far we've had very lackluster capital deepening. That is the amount of capital investment per labor hour during this expansion, it really lags previous expansions. And so that would suggest that a productivity surge, while possible, is not something I would bank on. Now, you put together, uh, you and uh, the folks at KPMG, you put together this great chart where you break down all of the components of GDP. And I want to go through some of them, if you don't mind. Talk a little bit about residential investment. Yeah, so we actually looked at, to, to sort of analyze this question, okay, is 2018, does it put it on a, on a different trajectory than the previous years in the expansion? So we have took the first half and annualized the pace of growth, and now we've taken the first three quarters of the year and annualized this pace of growth. And it looks pretty good. Consumption's a little stronger. We have business investment inching up a little bit more. Uh, but the thing that's really concerning is that residential fixed investment is down compared to um, the full year 2017, or residential fixed investment. So that's housing investment is down. And that is a big concern because housing is a leading indicator. And if you recall, it prices started to deturn for housing in 2006 when everybody was still popping their champagne and saying rah, rah, CDOs. Well, but I want to pick up exactly on this, right? This declined for the first time since late 2008 and early 2009, right? So this is uh, this is an unusual development, this decline in residential uh, investments. And I'm just wondering, given the fact that home ownership has changed and that more people rent, fewer people own and have their sort of net worth tied up with their residence, could it be different this time? Well, it could be different in terms of the impact on households, and certainly um, there have been tighter lending standards. So I wouldn't expect if we even had a, I mean, and remember, house prices declining is actually not the norm. What happens when housing gets softer is you see less investment there. You you see you don't see the multiplier effects of an expanding um, expanding housing market. So you don't see another housing crash coming. Is that what we basically see a housing crisis? But I but I think it's a warning sign in terms of the overall strength of GDP. And there are some really important structural reasons why housing hasn't advanced. I mean, there 
that is one area where there are severe construction shortages. Another area where there are shortages is in transportation, so getting the materials to the builders. Um, and then there's, of course, increase in prices for building materials. So you have an increase in cost of labor, an increase in cost of materials, and a shortage of labor so people can't do projects that they want to do. So this is a classic macroeconomic business cycle situation, right? This is exactly what causes slowdowns of the business cycle, is you have supply constraints that prevent expansion and that, in fact, bring about declines. Tell us about business investment right now. Yeah, so um, we saw this quarter a decline in structures. Well, let me actually go out to 30,000 feet first. So business investment has been on an upswing for about six quarters, seven quarters. And uh, when we started this year, of course, we had the tax law change. And we saw a surge in business investment in the first half of the year. So moving up around 10% versus 5.3% for all of 2017. Now it's a little bit more moderated, right? It's up 6.3% on an annualized basis. So a faster pace, but a faster pace that you would expect. This had been accelerating. And I say you would expect absent any tax law change. So this is going to be debated for a long time. Has this increase in business investment this year been as a result of the tax health change or a result of the trend that was already underway at the end of 2016 and into 2017? So given the fact that we actually saw not a decrease, but a slowdown in business ex uh, expenditures, investments in the third quarter, does that give you confidence in one view or another in terms of the tax cuts playing a role or not? Uh, no. Um, I mean, it, it, and it doesn't even make me overly concerned in general. We saw structures decline, but we saw, um, and we saw a slower pace of growth in uh, intellectual property and equipment. But those numbers fluctuate in, in quarter to quarter. It's also the first reading. So I, I'm not going to get overly concerned about that. But if you, if you think about how much of this was tax driven, I think it's too soon to see those results. If you look at surveys of, of business leaders and CEOs, they say 76% of them say they weren't planning to change their investment plans based on the tax law change. And as Pim and I were talking about before the show, right, that this is something that business leaders take a long time to plan. It's not something you really can do on the fly. There's maybe a few investments, but basically this is a long-term trend. Thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Constance Hunter, Chief Economist, KPMG. And of course, you can follow Constance Hunter on Twitter at Constance Hunter. We're looking at a sell-off in stocks. The S&P 500 right now down one and three quarters of a percent. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Driving the action today in markets very much is the Amazon and Alphabet reports that came out overnight or after the bell yesterday, basically giving a very negative tone, even though the uh, the actual earnings were okay. Joining us now, David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist at Laidlaw & Company in Brooklyn. Uh, David, thank you so much for being here. I wanted just to ask you, can you start by saying what was your impression of the earnings? Do you think that markets are misinterpreting them? The earnings themselves were fairly solid. However, if one looked at Amazon, there was a deceleration in terms of growth quarter to quarter. Uh, also, Google showing some challenges in terms of their top line revenue growth. Obviously, the bigger thing here is the fact that even though interest rates have been going up, 
even though the market's been selling off. We hadn't seen analysts bring in their own expectations. And anytime there is a shortfall relative to expectations, there has to be a reset. Obviously, analysts need to start bringing their numbers down. But as we also looked inside the results for both of these companies, Alphabet as well as Amazon, we saw that they're raising their spending levels, which is going to have an impact on near-term profit margins, which is going to serve to further reduce earnings expectations. So from that standpoint, anytime there's a shortfall versus expectations, yes, one could say it's the fault of the street. But the fact of the matter is that these companies' shares trade within something called the stock market that's populated by expectations. And if the company's performance is out of line with expectations, there has to be a reset on both sides. David Garrity, if you loved the shares of Amazon at the end of September, you have lost about 17.5%. Is it time to buy Amazon? If you love it at $2,006 a share... Do you love it at 1633 a share? Certainly, we're at a point in time during the year, going into the fourth quarter with the year-end holiday shopping season in front of us, that historically has been the seasonally strongest quarter in terms of earnings and results for Amazon, going back historically. If one wanted to trade what one's own expectations might be as to what that fourth quarter is, fine. This may not be a bad point in time to consider a short-term trade. However, at the same time, offset that against the fact that we had a very solid, better-than-expected GDP growth print for the third quarter at 3.5%, which obviously is going to leave the Federal Reserve in a position of raising interest rates going further into 2019. Higher interest rates always mean greater valuation challenges for high P.E. valuation names, such as an Amazon, especially as they don't pay a dividend and give you a total return. So if you want to have a trade around the fourth quarter results... But it's just a trade. It's not a long-term buy, in your opinion. I think until such time as we're out of the woods in terms of the Fed tightening cycle, um, these names are going to be a little bit challenged. You're certainly seeing reallocation by investors away from tech names towards more lower volatility, uh, higher earnings certainty names such as staples in terms of a sector over the course of October. I like how you talked about spending, and I think this is important because not all spending is equal. What are they spending the money on, and is it something that could uh, give them growth later on and keep them as, as being growth stocks? Certainly, there continues to be investment on their part in terms of high-ticket items such as data centers, which certainly give them the capacity for future growth. But as we know, looking at the results that came out of Microsoft earlier this week, uh, Microsoft, in terms of their online cloud services, Azure, were doing much better in growth terms than you saw either coming out of Amazon, who's been the leader in this category with their Amazon Web Services business, or with Google in this regard. So clearly you're seeing a more competitive market. Um, I would also add, maybe not so much for an Amazon, but I would say that relative to a Google, along with other social media names like a Facebook and a Twitter, you know, we're not only going up against the Federal Reserve tightening interest rates, but we're also facing greater regulatory scrutiny, which might intensify should the Democrats take the House of Representatives on November 6th. David Garrity, taking a look at Apple, they report their results after the close on the 1st of November. The stock is up about 27.5% so far this year. It pays a dividend. What are your thoughts on Apple? 
In terms of Apple, I mean, the company has demonstrated a policy of returning capital to shareholders, either through buybacks or through raising their dividend. Um, we see the company's growth in their services business uh, being a, certainly an important driver uh, for further gains in cash flow to sustain that kind of pattern of return generation. We do note, however, that smartphone volumes as a whole, looking across the market, uh, the growth there basically has come down to low single digits, a more competitive market. But we think if we look at Apple from a valuation standpoint, and we look at it as a total return vehicle, we're far more comfortable owning an Apple than we are, say, owning um, an Amazon or a Facebook. All right. So over the next two years, since you don't see this as a long-term buy, if the Fed does continue to raise rates, how much more do you think the FANG stocks have to sell off before they become attractive? on a long-term basis. Some of the work I've seen coming out elsewhere on the street have indicated that, you know, if we were to see an underperformance by tech names versus the Staples sector by maybe another 3 to 5%, that there might be what people would call sort of a near-term bottom being put in. But we also have to consider that, you know, we've been operating here in a stock market since March of 2009 where we've had accommodative monetary policy not just in the US, but globally. And all of this obviously has to be wound back, if you will, if we're going to position ourselves to address the possibility of a recession in 2020, which other companies such as a JP Morgan have started to put 60% odds on that we're going to have a recession in 18 months. If that happens, the monetary authorities have to have the capability to respond to that downturn, which means that they do need to unwind this easing that we saw so far earlier in this cycle. David Garrity, I'm taking a look at Facebook. You mentioned Facebook as another stock where you're not necessarily that eager to add to position or even engage a new position. The stock has lost more than 30% of its value since July, since mid-July. You'd have to go back to June of last year to find a comparable price, trading at $146 a share. Is Facebook on sale or is it just accurate, more accurately priced? I think Facebook is pricing in uh, the greater regulatory burdens that they're dealing with. Clearly, we spoke earlier about congressional scrutiny here in the U.S. We have also previously on this era spoken about in the EU, the imposition of the Global Data Privacy Regulations, or GDPR, which took place in May. I'd make the argument here that until such time as we start to anniversary i.e. going into the second half of 2019 of GDP, GDPR being put on the books, Facebook's going to be under a bit more pressure. So they're not just fighting the Fed, but they're fighting regulators here at home and abroad. Before we let you go, I'm really curious on your views on Twitter, because Twitter is bucking this trend, uh, reported better than expected earnings, even with the decline in actual users due to their crackdown on bots and other things. Um, what do you think about Twitter going forward? Um, you know, Twitter faces the same dynamic from a regulatory standpoint, clearly. Um, you know, we would argue at the same time that, you know, while they may be getting to profitability by shrinking their base, I've followed other industries in the past where shrinking one's way to profitability was not necessarily one's way to a higher share price. So I think until we start to get better definition as to how it is that the social media names are going to be able to operate after these regulatory changes are put into effect, uh, we probably sit back on the sidelines in terms of these stocks and let them find their own level. 
Well done. Thanks very much for being with us. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Company. Congratulations on your new position. Much appreciated. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Just to reiterate this development, the U.S. Justice Department said that one person is now in custody in connection with the mailing of suspected explosive devices that targeted high-profile Democrats. They are holding a news conference today at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, so we will bring you more when we get it. Uh, right now, though, it is time to turn our attention to the semiconductor space, the chip sector uh, that has been beaten up pretty broadly over the past few weeks. Uh, Anand Srinivasan joins us right now. Anand Srinivasan is Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Anand, it's actually a little bit challenging to get a consistent story when you look at the shares across the board, because Intel is doing great, uh, but AMD is absolutely getting crushed along with Broadcom and Qualcomm. What's going on here? Yeah, it's kind of hard to um, uh, sometimes separate the uh, the wheat from the chaff, if, if you may, but two, two schools of thought here, right? So it's all semiconductor cycle all the time. The semiconductor index has gone from a level of 400 to 1400 over a period of five and a half years. School, thought, school of thought number one is that this was an unheralded uh, extended upcycle and we will pay the price on the downside and it will be an unheralded extended downcycle, in which case this is uh, time to abandon the chips for an extended period of time. School of thought number two is that this is a substantially better industry with multiple demand drivers, more diversified, and as a result, you are going to have a shallower downturn and uh, semiconductors being the new industrials. You will have um, shallower up cycles and shallower down cycles uh, as has been the case. The smaller dips being more indicative of, uh, of the downturn. So uh, semis have been uh, beaten up pretty badly, 15% in the last month. Um, if you look at AMD, NVIDIA, 45% down, uh, NVIDIA down 26%. So they've been beaten up. But there's no question that a down cycle is underway. The question is how shallow or deep will it be? Anand, does this reflect end market demand? So, uh, so Intel's um, Intel has an opportunity to really change the narrative here, and then try to spin it such that PCs and servers are somewhat exempt from that. That this is a vertical specific downturn. I'm not a big believer in that camp. Usually, once um, uh, the the uh, the bug catches, it spreads um, all through the um, all through the sector. So, no particular end market is usually immune. And it's also reflective of the fact that um, corporate IT spending has been on a boom, um, server spending has been well, uh, is, is good, PCs uptake for the first time, up 2% uh, in several years. So all of that you can make a case for, um, but you can either say, okay, it hasn't broken yet, or it's actually been a little bit on the mend and the other sectors have to catch up. I want you to weigh in on exactly sort of the potential scenarios that you initially laid out. Mm -hmm. In particular, you know, what do we have to see to know that this is going to be a protracted and deep decline in this entire industry at a time when we do get some disappointing, we have gotten some disappointing earnings out of big tech and they're kind of a saturation point when it comes to certain technologies that really are, are heavy in the chip industry. Absolutely. Look, so... Um, semiconductors are sort of the tip of the spear, if you may. In order to see a protracted extended downturn, there has to be a macro collapse, right? Uh, semis see it first. Uh, you can make the case through tariffs. You can make the case through global GDP growth. Um, but 
I'm not in that camp, um, n not being a macro seer, uh, but also that um, there are just too many um, irons in the fire from a demand perspective. You have a third of the demand being the PC supply chain. You have a third of the semiconductor industry being the handset supply chain, but you have autos, you have industrials, you have um, other subsectors that are perhaps not as big and, and PCs are doing okay right now. So. You can make the case. Yeah, but autos are not. So a bunch of those other other parts are not. That's a that's a great point. Autos and industrials, however, are growing, but more due to content rather than gizmo growth. With PCs and handsets, gizmo growth was almost as important as stuff inside the gizmo. Semiconductors grow in two away two ways, right? Once you ship more handsets and PCs, option A, or the content within the handset and the PC uh, expands. So when these uh, particular uh, devices grew, the, the stuff within the gizmo also grew. Versus if you look at autos and industrials, these are pretty well-established market, but stuff in the gizmo is growing. So if you look at content growth within a car, up from $200 several years ago to somewhere in the 500 plus range right now, uh, depending on what subsectors you include in there. So industrials, the same thing, IoT, distributed. So you can make the case for an extended, uh, extended upcycle, but... These are smaller subsectors. A third of the business handsets, a third of the business PCs. Um, so, and and therein lies the drama of their two schools of thought with the cycle. Anand, can you speak to the memory chip demand issue? Yeah. So memory, mem that's a great point. Um, and uh, memory is ubiquitous. It goes into everything, right? Uh, memory density or memory capacity per device has been on a tear across devices, uh, but there has been buildup of overcapacity in the industry. And the question is, is there enough absorption of that overcapacity over a short period of time to uh, get supply and demand back into balance? The big driver of that was the cloud uh, data center market um, and, um, uh, and the SSD business. And there was a big move from flash, uh, from hard disk drives to flash. So those were the big consumers, but prices collapsing the way they are given oversupply, will that extra demand be absorbed and how soon will be absorbed? So I'm just wondering, uh, just to, to wrap up here, which companies are most exposed to the auto and industrial space where the insides are expanding and maybe the gizmos aren't uh, versus those that are more exposed to the uh, PCs and phones and things where you know there, there's much less kind of room to expand? Absolutely. So um, NXP Semiconductors, which, is, um, uh, which was just um, coming out of the broken M&A deal with Qualcomm, um, uh, is, a, is a, one of the leaders in auto market share. Um, Texas Instruments has high auto market share, SD Microelectronics, and uh, Infineon out of Germany. Well done. Thanks for being with us as always, illuminating. Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios on this Friday. President Trump yesterday announced a drug pricing proposal, and uh, here to talk a little bit about that is Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Max, wonderful to see you. So first, can you just give us a, a sort of outline of what President Trump is proposing? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a three-part plan, uh, a demonstration through the the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services Office of Innovation, so not something that requires uh, 
extra legislation and sort of a, a three-pronged approach. Uh, the first is to give uh, some some vendors in the private sector more power to negotiate with drug makers. The second, to change the way that doctors are reimbursed for some medicines from uh, a 6% on top of the average wholesale price to a flat fee. And then the most important one is to benchmark a series of, of expensive drugs paid through, for Medicare, through Medicare Part B. Uh, they're going to benchmark them to cheaper international prices, and over the period of five years, um, mandate that you know Medicare will start reimbursing uh, at that lower average rate because uh, you know, the rest of the uh, the world pays substantially lower lower prices for those medicines than we do. By some analysis, Americans spend nearly nine hundred dollars per person on prescription drugs each year. That's twice as much as Australians and three times as much as the people in the Netherlands. Why? Uh, so that actually ends up being a really interesting question with this international price index. The reason is that other countries are much more willing to say no to highly priced medicines, to enact price controls. All of that comes at a cost to access, you know, People, um, the average person in one of those countries is less likely to be able to access the most advanced possible therapy uh, than someone in America usually. But uh, the, the uh, kind of upside of that is the fact that they, they end up paying dramatically less for medicines because they're willing to play hardball in a way that we're not. So, Max, you've come on the show before and you've talked about previous uh proposals from President Trump or people who work for him. And you've said, eh, this is kind of no meat here. Is this the same thing? I think this is the first time that, that I really think that, that, you know, if it happens, and that's uh, an enormous if, and we can talk about why, uh, it would bring down prices. It, and again, this is a subset of a subset of the drug market. It's just half the country uh, and just Part B medicines for the National Pricing Index. But since those prices are so much lower, um, if you actually, you know, follow through with this index, prices in the United States will come down for, for seniors. Um, and, you know, it's sort of a curious way to go about it in that we're sort of importing the sort of price controls and restrictions that uh, we, you know, that the, the administration has said it previously doesn't like. It's kind of doing a, a, back war way, a backdoor way of, uh, of importing them. So, so it's an interesting way to go about it. But it, it should actually uh, bring down prices, that, mostly because, you know, theoretically, drug makers could raise prices elsewhere. That's sort of the angle that the administration is going with to sort of explain ideologically what seems like a... Uh, a sort of incongruous move from them. Um, basically, they're saying, you know, we're they're freeloading off of us. We're paying for the innovation, and they're benefiting from us. But it's it's not so easy as to go to the UK and say we're raising the price. The UK can just say, well, no. <laughs> then they they've proven themselves willing to do that. So um, yeah, that, that's why I do think the prices will actually come down here if this goes goes ahead. All right. Well, let's just offer. I'll offer some examples and, and get your thoughts on this. The price of Avastin which is a uh, cancer uh, drug, in the United States, you're going to end up paying about $4,000 for Avastin. In Switzerland, you pay under two grand. In Spain, you're paying about 1500 And you mentioned the United Kingdom. You're paying about $500 for the same drug. Harvoni, which is the hep C uh, drug, you're paying like... $35,000 in the United States and in, you know, Switzerland you're paying 16, 17,000. Where do those numbers come from? Who sets that price? 
Uh, it's it's the drug maker, and and it's all within the context of a different system. Like you know that that Harvoni price after discounts in the the commercial market is probably a little bit lower. But Avastin is actually a really good example here. It is a, a biologic uh, administered in doctors' offices, so a Part B drug, and uh, one that's used for cancer patients, so one that has a lot of Medicare reimbursement. Um, and in this case. You know, part of it is just that these healthcare systems are, are willing to play hardball when they negotiate. They negotiate on behalf of the entire country in many cases, as opposed to kind of the piecemeal way we do that. Um, and also, uh, the other thing is that there's more robust biosimilar competition in other countries. They've been quicker about um, getting competition to the market for these expensive drugs. So we're hoping to sort of both import that more aggressive negotiation and the more aggressive competition for biologics in some of these markets. I want to go to something that you hinted at, which you said that if this gets implemented, and it's a very big if, and we could talk about it, so let's talk about it. Why is it such a sort of uh, long shot, it sounds like, you think? So um, one thing that this is reminiscent of to people that have been following drug prices for a long time is a similar uh, CMS demonstration by the Obama administration that also tried to move uh, physician reimbursement to a flat fee and implement a variety of reference pricing, though though a different one. In many ways, it was actually a milder proposal, but it was absolutely ripped to shreds by the pharma and physician lobby and Republican lawmakers. This is really interesting. In other words, they're taking a page from the Obama administration and crafting this proposal. Republican congressmen were not in favor of this. Now President Trump is proposing it. Wouldn't it potentially have a greater chance of getting through because there is more likely to be Republican support for it, given President Trump's leadership? Or do you think that that's still uh, it's not enough to sort of get this pushed through? It's it's pretty unclear. It'll it'll take some time for that to play out. But so far, um, you know, I'm thinking of a statement that that Orrin Hatch made, uh, the senator from Utah. It was uh, to to call it tepid would be would be exaggerating a little bit. Uh, you know, so <laughs> it's it's just sort of an, an awkward and, and a little bit out of character proposal uh, for Republicans to support. And, and time will tell whether kind of the the Trump effect. Um, you know, the, the kind of move towards the populist will lead them to support something that they, uh, they vehemently opposed uh, another version of in the past. Max, the United States has no government panel that negotiates drug prices, correct? Uh, that's correct. It's all left, for example, in Medicare Part D to private plans. And in Part B, the part it's just kind of left up to the drug makers. Mostly there's not much negotiation at all. Does that make any sense? Um, you know, I mean, the government really. is footing the bill. It, it's basically, you know, letting one of the world's largest purchasers of healthcare services and tossing one of the biggest benefits of that, which is a huge amount of negotiating power, tossing it by the wayside. And instead of using that, um, going by this very complicated backdoor. Um, importation of other people's negotiating power for part of the market. So, yeah, that would one would think that the the more impactful proposal would be to just use that negotiating power, but uh, that that appears to still be off the table. Thanks very much for being with us. Max Neeson is always an expert when it comes to all things healthcare. Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering the healthcare industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. We should just say that the S&P 500 has fallen 10% from its all-time high. Also, uh, CNN is reporting that authorities have arrested a man in Florida in the explosives package case. We'll keep you posted. This is Bloomberg. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.